welcome to the Thursday edition of the Back to Back podcast. It is Nerder She Wrote. I am your host, Dave DeFore. Before we get started, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review The Daily Ding, our new short-form daily podcast recapping the previous night in the NBA. We also moved BOMM to its own feed, so make sure you subscribe there. And then finally, check out Kian Fahey and Zach Harper on their new NFL podcast, The Interceptable. Uh, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to that as well. Uh, joining me on the show, as always, Coach David Thorpe. Coach, uh, 35th reunion. How did it go? Was it a successful endeavor? It was fantastic, Dave. Um, yeah, as I mentioned last week, I've known these people. I moved into the area when I was in uh, third grade. Many of the people at the party the other night were in my third grade classroom, my third grade school. Probably 95% or so were at my middle school and then the same middle school fed to the high school. So, And many of us went to the University of Florida together. So it was really incredible. And uh, we, I just was... <clears throat> telling all of them this morning in a post on our Facebook page that it's just so rare as you and I talked about last night, Dave, on the phone. Yeah. Uh, to have, I mean, there were, I think we had 70 some odd people there, um, to have that many people that were connected with, you know, going back for us, you know, 1973 was when I moved into that school system. Uh, that's a long damn time. And, uh, we've seen it, we've seen each other grow up, our kids grow up and, I told my daughter last night that just be just be decent to your high school friends. You may not be great friends with them now, but uh, you'll you'll leave a good impression in their heart. And that's that's a good fertile soil for it to grow on. So when you grow older and come see them, they'll have such fond memories and kind memories of you. And that's where real friendships can begin at any point in your life. So really, it's spectacular. And everyone had a great time. And I stayed sober, uh, which isn't such a big deal. But (laughs) most people at reunions go crazy. And I just felt like. I told everyone, if someone needs to go sober, I'm your wingman. I'll drink water all night at our big dance party. And uh, I still had an amazing time. So it, it's proof to people that, you know, got to tie one on and have a great time with people you've known your whole life. You know, I, I was telling you last night, uh, I've got like two friends that, that I've known since sixth grade that I that I keep in touch with. And then only one friend from high school. Um just, I move a lot. And so, you know, it's not like, uh, I collect all these friends and, and hang on to them. I have been historically bad at, at maintaining every day is a new chance to change. Dave. I know. Hey, you know what? The, the basketball world has kind of opened my eyes to the fact that it's important to maintain these relationships because, you know, people will forget about you. And if you want to do anything in basketball, you just can't have that. Um, Joining us, uh, we're, we're really pumped to have her here from SB Nation, the artist formerly known as Damian Trillard, uh, the prolific Sirit Sohi. Sirit, uh, how, <laughs> your oldest friend, how long have you had uh, this person in your life? Hey, thank God you asked me that because I had no idea how to follow up such a touching <laughs> note. My oldest friend is, uh, she's, we've, we actually met playing basketball in grade six. And I actually just went to visit her in New York a couple, uh, about a week ago and a couple weeks before that, when, uh, when, uh, we were at the live show, Jade actually got a chance to meet her alongside some of the other, the other basketball, uh, buds. So that was, that was pretty cool. But yeah, we've been, we've been friends since, since grade six and she's pretty much like my rock. She's like the person who knows the most about me and I don't really know where I would, uh, be without her it's like it's really awesome getting to grow up with people just you just end up so similar in so many ways that uh you know just like the little intricacies of how you feel about little things and just being able to to know what somebody's feeling with just the look like it's just really it's just really cool to to be around uh be around your your best friends again which is like yeah. something i just got to experience so it was, it was awesome yeah. uh were, were you a point guard growing up I was, I was, I was probably miscast, but it was the only position I was tall enough to play. <laughs> In today's world, it seemed like you could have a point guard playing almost anywhere. I remember, I remember George Carl playing Ty Lawson at the two sometimes with Andre Miller. And, uh, he is about as small as you're going to get in the league in the last probably 15 years. And that was one of the teams he had maybe the best team in Denver where they were unbeatable pretty much in Denver after January. So you, you, and you may have had to be a point guard, um, growing up, but in the NBA, maybe you could have played the two. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm a small ball too. 
<laughs> I'm a two now in my rec league, which is, uh, what, what's <laughs> that's, your, uh, that's also awkward after having played point guard for so long. What's your rec league's team's name? OG anybody's. Oh that's gosh. Great. That's like really it. good. Okay. Well, uh, speaking of point guards, uh, Sarah just wrote a, a great piece on SB nation about the Philadelphia 76ers and, and they got a big win against Indiana last night. Um, they, their point guard, Markel Fultz, I guess, uh, even though he doesn't really have point guard duties when he's sharing the court with Ben Simmons, um, it has not been the start to the season that they've uh, anticipated from him. And uh, there was some you know, drama with his trainer saying he's unhealthy. Uh, Sirit, how do you how do you think that they're going to approach this uh, this lineup change that just feels inevitable? They're they're going to have to go back to the lineup that was the best lineup in basketball last year at some point. Um, how do you see them doing that without completely killing Fultz's confidence? Well, I think it might be a little bit more of an organic tra- uh, transition than uh, and that will probably help Fultz a little bit. Just we've ca- kind of noticed since the piece came out that they've been going to that lineup less and less. They still start with it, and then they rarely go to it after that. And that wasn't really what they were doing the first two games of the season. I think occasionally they would try to start it in the second half again. They're not doing that anymore. They're going back to to the lineup you reference, which is JJ Redick and in the place of Markel Fultz just gives them so much more spacing and really opens things up for them. I think because Fultz is also so good when he is handling the ball and he's not playing with Simmons, uh, it would probably just make sense for, for everybody involved that his minutes he spent with them staggered. And I think, you know, down the line, that's probably what they're going to end up doing. But I think right now it seems like that's, that's an experiment that they're kind of, Willing to take uh, take a little bit further, and they're still, you know, they still are much better on, at home. So they got a little bit of a cushion there, and I think it kind of will come down to how much they trust their ability to to just put together a win streak when when the time comes. I don't know if they do, but I mean, I asked I asked Brett Brown if if he thought that the lineup with Simmons and both was tenable if none of them was able to space the floor. And I kind of got a bit of a non-answer, but there are sort of ways I think against certain teams and certain situations it works just because fault is kind of developing defensively. So if they can get going, then maybe it's a little bit more tenable than it looks right now. It is, it is pretty ugly. And I think that if, if you look at the lineup data changing a little bit, just in terms of how much they're playing, you're kind of starting to realize that they are going away from it slowly and, and, and subtly coach. You and I have talked quite a bit about the importance of having smart players on the court. And uh, to me, it's problematic to have potentially your highest IQ player, JJ Redick, not out there to start the game. I mean, I feel like some of these slow starts could be mitigated by having, you know, better IQ on the floor. How do you feel about that? Well, you're right. Uh, but yeah, let's let's tie in uh, Markel to this whole equation. Uh, I give the Sixers credit. Markel is, is not a good player right now. Uh, there's lots of reasons why it, that we know about going back to last year and not having much experience, which which counts for a lot. But also, we don't know really how he healthy is. His trainer, I'm surprised that he said something. Normally, I mean, I've done, I think I've had 76 now guys in the league. I've never once tweeted stuff like that. I was a little surprised to see that. Um, but he might be right. And maybe there is something wrong. I'll tell you this. He 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 doesn't move like very well. Uh, there's a couple of dunks I've seen recently where he's only dunking the ball because he's super long and he's super tall, but he didn't jump very high and he had, he had a runway to do it, which may, which tells me a little bit, maybe there's something lower body, not just upper body. Although upper body is, I've heard some people tell me 15% of your jumping is upper body. So, you know, it could be anything. Uh, but the Sixers know he's not going to get better, not playing. And so if you, if you think about the, the elasticity of a team, in other words, what what can the Sixers stretch to by May, June? Uh, the answer to that is largely contingent on his development. Uh, there's there's going to be no one probably that has more upside to mind over the course of one season than him. I guess you could say maybe if Ben Simmons could start making uh, perimeter shots, that would be a, a more dynamic change. But if we're talking about what's realistic, because that isn't so realistic right now, it would be it would be uh, Fultz's advancement as a player, and that has to come from playing time. So, um, one thing I think they're probably considering is we know what we have with JJ. 
we know for sure uh, that teams like to hide sometimes their best rotations uh, for lots of different reasons, not just hiding them because they don't want the other opponent to know what's coming, but they're trying to develop a second one. What's another lineup that could look really good that becomes a crunch time lineup for us if there's a tweak to an injury or foul trouble, whatever. Uh, we know he, that Fultz plays better when Simmons is off the court. Uh, but it's good for his overall player development to also learn how to play without the ball in his hands, which he's lost mo- mostly right now. Doing so, he doesn't really – when we talk about low IQ, one of the problems he has is he doesn't really ever factor in where the help's coming from and who that is that's helping so he'll get himself caught at the rim by a guy that has just no problem talling up and taking away any decent shooting angle. That's just not – that experience has to come on the court, and then you watch it on video, and then maybe as a reference point, he starts understanding, I can't just drive blindly. I have to check to see what's underneath me as, as I quick attack or cut. Those things, they just have to take time. So I give the Sixers credit, and and other than maybe Toronto and Milwaukee, you know, they still look like they could be a, a top-four seed that – the East is still fluctuating some, and so they've got some wins and really some losses to play with. Um, I don't know that at some point, I mean, you guys are talking about it. Maybe they just um, just kind of go away from playing them together, knowing that injuries are going to probably come about at some point. They'll be back on the court at that point. Uh, I think they're smart for doing they're doing. They're a long way from being a good team. So are the Celtics. So are pretty much everyone. But, the, but like I said, Toronto and Milwaukee – so I feel like they're, they're in a good path here. I don't know how good they can get, but I, I know that without him really improving dramatically, they're not going to be a threat. And just to tie it back into the J.J. Redick stuff, you know, they had the best lineup in basketball last year. And, and again, J.J., one of the smartest players in the league, just from an from a understanding spacing and understanding movement away from the ball, and, and not to mention what he actually does on the court by doing those things. Um, you know, Coach, I, I know how much you love J.J.'s game. Uh, I, I feel like this is a situation that's going to come to a head, and, and probably soon, where, where they're going to have to move J.J. back into the starting lineup. So, yeah, just referencing what I was saying before, uh, they know they have that. And that, that lineup has been on the court, their top five lineup. Um, they're, they're, they're not playing it very much. Uh, they proved what they can do last year with it. Uh, you can't learn from the bench. But uh, I, I just I think it's a knee jerk reaction by teams to feel like they have to win every minute with their best lineup in November or October, which was got through. Um, I do think, and I think Sarat said it exactly right. I think it'll be a matriculation, you know, where you just start seeing that lineup uptick in terms of the minutes per game. Uh, I think what's really important is the educational things going on after games. I've always said you have to play first to get those really big reference points where you can learn from. You can't do it from the bench. Uh, there's things you can learn from the bench. There's not a lot. Uh, and so JJ being, and I've told this story before, one of the best teammates, leaders, and maybe the most misunderstood teammate and leader, people who have played with him just love him so much. Going back to his high school and college days, what he's doing off this, the fact that he's willing to become off the bench, come out firing, uh, what he's doing in behind the scenes, maybe Serrat knows, I don't know, uh, the kind of leadership he's showing to help those guys grow and seeing his selflessness that he, I, I watched them play a decent amount. I watched them play last night in, in, the, in that big win. Uh, I don't ever see him, you know, uh, show some kind of frustration. That's a really important point that Brett Brown can make to his young guys about this veteran leader who clearly isn't just one of our best five players, but, you know, there's probably 27 teams that could greatly use J.J. Redick right now. And yet he's willing to come off the bench for this team, for the betterment of the team. That can help unite those guys if they allow it to, if the culture's right. And I, and I don't know, but I, I'm guessing that I think that, I, that it will. And that's going to pay dividends down the road. But right now their IQ, their collective IQ is not high enough, in my opinion, where they can make a, a long a stretch run in the playoffs uh, but there's also a lot of time to get better at it. We're having some technical difficulties with Sirit right now. We're going to bring her in on the phone. Just to add to David's point there about, you know, not running your best lineups in, in November and just trying to win every game. That is essentially what Brown is doing. I, I think they know that the false lineup with him in the starting lineup is, uh, is not optimal right now. But, you know, he pretty much just said, like, no, like what, 
what do what do teams look like in the playoffs? And after seeing what happened to them against Boston, and I think I think one of the one of the knee jerk reactions I think the NBA in general has had is just looking at Boston as the quintessential successful playoff team because of what they did last year. I think there's still plenty of ways to win, but if you look at what they did to to Philly specifically, you know I, I think. I think the organization felt like they had to go back to the drawing board. And after not getting anybody in the, uh, in the off season, Fultz really is the one piece, like coach said, has the highest upside, has the biggest chance to make a difference. And if he continues to grow, which I do think he will, you know, at a certain point, your five most dynamic players, your five most important players, and, you know, just Fultz and Bede and Simmons in general, your three young cornerstones do have to find a way to play each other. So, you know, right now it, it looks really ugly. It might continue to look really ugly, but I also don't have a problem with them continuing to run it out because, you know, they know what they have with the other lineup and uh, it clearly wasn't good enough. So, you know, what's, what's the point of continuing to to run that back over again when you know that, by the way, Boston's going to be better this year. Toronto's better this year. Milwaukee's better this year. Like you have to find a way to get better yourself. And right now, you know, unless they make a trade or something, that's really only going to happen internally. Consider this too: uh, the lineup of Fultz, Reddick, Covington, Saric, and Embiid. They've only had 47 possessions, which is nothing, but it's plus 22. Um, it, it's scoring 142 points per 100 possessions. Now it's also giving up 120, but that's still a 22 point difference. Um, I guarantee you, they know that. And that's something they'll play with. Again, Simmons on the bench with Fultz with the, that group in there. You got shooters at the you know two, three, four, in a sense, even the five with Embiid. Uh, that, that, the only non-shooter is Fultz. Um, I could see that, them playing with that more and more, uh, to especially give Simmons some rest going into a fourth quarter, you know? The other thing is that I think uh, pretty much every every lineup that is Fultz instead of Simmons, if you have the same other guys in there, those lineups this year, again, small sample size for most of them, they've been significantly better with Fultz in there. I think because Fultz is a new guy and obviously with the mystery around his shot and there are times that he does look lost and, you know, completely ignored on the corners. But it's not like, you know, Simmons has had some really good games, but he's also struggled in ways similar to faults, but because he's kind of the constant factor from last year, I don't think we've talked about that as much. He's been, he, there's been games where he's just been so turnover prone that he's just stymied their whole offense and let teams basically, you know, get out onto quarter long runs themselves. So, you know, it's not like he doesn't have some responsibility in, uh, in how uh, clogged up that lineup has been. Well, he's shooting like 8% on jump shots. Uh, that I mean, that's that's like a real that's, stat. That's, and bad, that's right? a problem. Yeah, that's not great. Sira, did you go to see them play in person? Oh uh, yeah, I saw them in Toronto and in Brooklyn. So I mean, I've not seen an NBA game in person where, other than a playoff game once with the Spurs and the Heat, where no one's guarding the, the guards on the court. They're just they hang back so much when Simmons and and Fultz are on the court at the same time, and. Uh, uh, unless that changes, that's just, that's almost like a throwback to the nineties yeah. with, with how teams can hang. So that, that's why you, I don't, don't think you'll see them play much together as we, when the games really start mattering more. Well, I think the goal is that they want to switch proof lineup, at least the, the option of that. And, sure. and unfortunately without Simmons and Fultz shooting, they're not going to get that because, no. you know, Embiid being played off the court against Boston, it, it, that's a problem. And the truth is, uh, if Simmons doesn't shoot and Sirit, you, you kind of talked about this because they see Joel Embiid as the guy who can sort of, uh, break up what teams want to do and kind of be the answer to the analytics, so to speak, where, where the pace, he, he can slow the pace down. Uh, it, the, he can overcome the volume of threes because he's so good in the post, but without that shooting, you're going to be able to pack the paint against him and he's not nearly as effective. Right. I mean, you kind of, there are probably ways to, to bust up modern defenses, but you kind of, at a certain point, unless, you know, unless Fultz magically develops his jump shot, which I think is kind of what they're hoping for. That hitch looks pretty bad though. And, you know, I just, I, I don't, I don't really necessarily see that happening in the near future. You know, you do have to pick a direction that you're going to go with it. Like you have to optimize something. 
you can't just trot out a whole bunch of guys who are not modern and then think that you're zagging and it's somehow going to going to solve itself like at a certain point they're going to have to just decide okay if we do want to see if Embiid can be the correction then you really have to build around him in a way that that actually suits that and that might involve you know one of the problems is also that Simmons wants to play a lot faster than Embiid too so it's not just fault that's a fit problem in that regard either so you know we'll they do play a lot better together, and I think he's better at setting him up. But at the same time, like you, it just it becomes so easy to defend when I mean, what what do you do with a Simmons and Bead pick and roll in in the playoffs? You just you just ignore Ben, and then that's kind of done. And with guards, especially point guards, you can just you can double off such I think fruitful spots from the weak side that you'll be able to recover from as well. So. You know, and Bede's supposed to be that guy. They are going to have to get some space around him, right? And and so you don't you wind up with this the the scenario where the defenses don't even have to switch. They literally can just attach to Embiid, and you just stop that that any sort of interior uh, penetration there. And, and coach, you and I have talked quite a bit about switching uh, so far this year. I mean, yeah. this is it's been it's been the thing now for a few years. It started with the Warriors, of course. I mean, it, it started before that, but the Warriors kind of made it a real thing. Positionless basketball. I mean, Embiid in theory should be the one guy who should be able to take advantage of mismatches on the switch. But it, again, Simmons shooting prevents him from doing it. Um, you, you texted me last night, uh, that you wanted to talk about the trap teams are falling into with switching and, uh, Sirit and I, we were like, wait, what is this? Uh, and so I want you to tell me what is this trap that I'm missing? Because the only thing I can think of is, uh, you know, you give up the, the cuts, right? So like the, we saw the warriors do this against, uh, against the rockets last year, slipping screens and things like that. Uh, so I'm really curious what, what you're seeing with the, the switching issue. Yeah. So, well, it's from the defensive side. So, um, cause you're, you're, you're right. The way, one way you attack switching is you, you move the ball faster. You also move people faster and, and you slip screens a lot or you veer screen before you even get to the screen, you veer off. And that's how people attack it. But it's not just switching. It's all, it's the, it's the not helping and staying home is killing offenses. Well, it's not killing offenses. It's where it's why you're going to see offenses start to drip down from, from their lofty perch in the first couple of weeks. What, what I'm seeing now watching three or four games a night is as teams are getting better at it. Remember the Rockets and Mike D'Antoni was on Zach Lowe last week. And I listened to it. It was like a 30 minute interview. And he talked about uh, this a little bit, but something we saw last year, the Rockets, this is all they did. Like a lot of teams will change up a little bit night to night. They, they didn't. And so they just got so much more practice, you know, that, that old, 10,000 hours idea from Malcolm Gladwell. They just got so much better at switching because it requires anticipation and communication. And that just doesn't happen overnight. And so what, what's happened with teams as they are getting better at it, where they're, they'll communicate through the veer screens, uh, they'll communicate through the ref- screen refusals, the slip screens, and then they stay home on whatever mismatch looks like is coming. And what happens is the offenses are trapped in thinking, okay, we got a mismatch here. And they end up with a half hook from 12 feet. Watch how much it happens in a game, especially from a guy that isn't a great scorer in the first place. They'll post up the guy, or maybe they'll get him a little bit of an isolation. Defenders getting better and better because it's been happening for a while now. Even at the high school level, we work with our bigs on defending perimeter players uh, because we're, we, we jump switch everything, which is a little bit different than most NBA teams. Um, and, and so the offensive player can't just take his guy and play bully ball like a Blake Griffin might, like an Embiid probably should. And everyone else stays home, so you can't get the three. And they're just forced to take a, a tough shot with no angle to the rim over a talled-up defender. Wall up on the movement, tall up on the shot. And those are just low-percentage shots. Remember, a Popovich created that beautiful, simple phrase, good to great. Uh, which is the name of a book, which is, but it's a, it's a corporate book, but he said, good to great, meaning let's look for a good shot. Let's work for a great shot. And the point was when we earn a good shot and defenses have to rally to change that good, uh, then you move the ball 
and it gets to be great. And Steve Kerr called that the first domino falling. And the first domino falling was the drawing that second defender in, whether it's off a dribble drive or an interior pass or a player looking to get a good shot. Second guy comes to help. Now you get a great shot with movement. Your teams just aren't sending that second guy. And as, as individual players get better and better, remember, they're also getting individual scouting reports for what that opponent wants to do. First move, second move, counter move. They start walling and talling up better. And uh, end of a shot clock comes. The pace is getting slower. And uh, they take that half hook. Watch a game and see how many of the shots I'm talking about that are just low percentage shots. And so as that starts happening more and more, especially the teams that lose the pace that they were playing at earlier on, I think you'll start seeing defense defenses start winning more and numbers start coming down. Oh, okay. So see, that's pretty interesting. And, and, you know, since last week, the average offensive rating is down about a point per team, uh, per hundred possessions. So, uh, Sirit, you know, a guy who looks to be kind of a switch buster is Trey young in Atlanta, very much in the Steph Curry mold. You have to defend him as soon as he crosses half court, essentially. Uh, but his passing has been, and, and I was saying this kind of coming into the year that people are going to be surprised when they see how well he reads the court. I mean, is Trey young, it, it, is it too early to say, Oh, this is the next staff. I mean, uh, of course it is. Cause it's 10 games into his career, but have you seen anything out of him that, that would make you feel like, uh, there's some optimism or, uh, at least there should be some hope in Atlanta. I mean, there should definitely be hope in Atlanta. I mean, maybe not Steph Curry levels of hope, but he is so good. He does not play like a rookie at all. I mean, yeah, of course, like any point guard is going to have, have a lot of mistakes that they have to work through, but man, like he just, he's so poised. He, his, he slows up already. He's not really a one speed type of guy, which is probably good because he's not the most athletic guy in the world, but you know, so I guess that's something that's probably probably had to, to hone for a long time. I'm actually not, I'm not a big college basketball person, so I can't speak too much to, I guess, uh, developments that he's, he's made throughout, uh, throughout the summer maybe, but just to see even the preseason, the regular season now, like it's just, there's kind of a similarity in like that, the electric feeling of like, this guy could just kind of do anything at any moment. And it's going to be really exciting. Like you definitely feel it, feel like that when you watch him, he's, he's like averaging eight, 18 and eight, which is just, you know, that's, that's pretty ridiculous for, for a rookie and just some of the gaudy stat lines he's put up are just, he's just so fun. He's just so fun. I don't like, I don't necessarily want to compare him to stuff, but at the same time, you can tell that they are using him like Steph too, like just a lot of off ball screening. He's obviously facing the floor a lot more than he was before. And, uh, you know, it's defensively, I think he's going to have to make some strides, but he's just, he's, he's a bit of a matchup nightmare though, for those, uh, for those bigs to get back to, to the switchbuster thing. I mean, he's just, he's so shifty. His handle is so tight, way tighter than I thought it would be. Like he's, he's kind of got, he's got the ball handling skills of a point guard that's been in the league for like four or five years. And even that for like at, at the, at the upper levels of it, like when I was, when I watch him, I try to think of a guy I can compare him to, but I don't really want to go the Steph route yet. He kind of reminds me a little bit of Kemba, but you know, just, I guess like more of a, more of a modern Kemba. I think Kemba earlier on, like kind of, kind of took its time in terms of just prioritizing the three point line and things like that. And just had, didn't really have the decision-making that, that Trey has, but he still has that sort of, that ability to, I think he just makes everybody think because he really is liable to do anything at any moment. And because of the passing, it just makes him such a threat. He can pull up from anywhere. You know, he makes like these, these great cross court reads or just like, you know, pocket passes to big men and traffic that you just wouldn't really, wouldn't really think a guy like him, but, uh, you know, just as a rookie would be able to make with such confidence. Well, so, you know, obviously it's going to be turning the ball over quite a bit just because he's a rookie, but it's just, he's so much, he's so much more polished than I yeah, you, he would be. You got to throw those turnovers out the window for rookie point guards. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up change of speeds because that was something that, that you didn't really get to see a lot when he was in college. Um, you know, people just, we all focused on the, uh, shooting 30 footers and look at all these turnovers and no one put it into context and said, well, you know, he's not really passing the ball to NBA athletes and all this stuff coach. Um, I mean, he's finishing at the basket much better 
than anyone anticipated for his rookie year. Uh, Trey Young, is he is he like a future all star? I think he is. <clears throat> and my son would disown me if I said otherwise. It's his favorite player. Um, as I've said before, when when he was in college, I didn't see him in high school. Uh, but when he was in college, I didn't watch him for five minutes. And I said, oh, oh, I know who that guy is. Uh, and so I'll ask you, you may, Dave, maybe you've heard me say this on previous podcasts, uh, who I think he plays like. Uh, but do you know who's credited with being the guy that kind of invented splitting splitting screens? Mark Price. Yeah, that's who Trey is. Oh, owns. yeah. That's it. Yeah, That's who he is. He's he's super crafty. He's not going to elevate above the rim. Uh, obviously, if Mark Price grew up when Trey Young grew up, this is who we see right now. Uh, now, he played you know Georgia Tech for four years and was a great, great player there. Probably before, I think his, he, his, he's a year, I think he's a year older than me. So his last year was 1986. Were you guys even alive then? Yeah, I was. Barely. <laughs> oh, well, uh, I was Cedar, five. Uh, <laughs> I was Cedar five. Wasn't. He, he was a very, very special player, amazing shooter, uh, uh, brilliant floor leader, hustled, scrapped, uh, and he looked like he should be a librarian or like an engineer. And I think Trey Young has a lot of those characteristics as an athlete in terms of physical dimensions. Uh, I understand why people compare him to Steph Curry, but again, I mean, I'm, again, I'm, I'm so old. People like to compare the next great athlete to Michael Jordan. It was just always so stupid. There's not going to be another Jordan. There's not going to be another LeBron. Steph might be the third best player of all time when he's done. That's how good he is. Uh, so he's not going to be that guy. But he, Mark Price was a was a hell of a player uh, and and an all star. I think that um, I think he made four all star games and was all league four times. That's that's something. I don't know if he'll get all league four times. Our league is so loaded. But uh, I give the Hawks a lot of credit as we were talking about with Fultz in, in Philadelphia. Uh, I think he's like seventh or eighth or ninth in in usage percentage. You know, he's he's the ball's in his hands all the time, and yeah, he, he has more, a forty more than Westbrook right assist now. rate. Yeah, he Was has it? a 42 percent assist rate. Yeah. Trey Young does. The, the ball's in his hands a bunch. He's he's making play. He did this in college too, right. and uh, we won't know fully until he's got other veteran solid players that know how to play, which is such an important thing in knowing how to play, not just being athletic or skilled, but also maybe more important, most importantly, knowing how to play. Uh, and by the way, he knows how to play at, at a high level for his age. Give him a few years. Uh, I don't know how good that coach is. We'll see. But with the right coaching system, with the good players around him, uh, can he be a starter for a contender? In my opinion, absolutely. If, if his work ethic is what I've heard it is. I, I, Lon Kruger was my mentor when I was a young coach, and I think he's an amazing coach. I'm sure he taught Trey a bunch when he was in college. And again, again, going back to reference points, this is how this guy's been playing for a long time. And so the amount of learning he can do because of how much the ball's in his hands, as long as he's studying film and, and really uh, honoring his craft, uh, he's got a, a tremendous upside. And if you're an Atlanta fan, you got to be thrilled. Yeah. And actually, so he has a 42% assist rate and a 28% usage rate. And in college, he was like 44 assist rate and 42 usage. So, I mean, like you said, the ball's in his hands a ton. Of course, he's going to turn the ball over a lot, at least the raw numbers. Um, but four and a half turnovers per 36 is not, I mean, no. it's, it's like James Harden. Right. Um, and no one's saying, well, James Harden turns the ball over too much. You know, it's just, it's all about the context. Um, Another rookie, Sirit, uh, another rookie who is who has really been showing me a lot and and again reaffirming my beliefs coming into the season. Jaron Jackson Jr., uh, man, that guy looks like a star. I, I I will stand firm by my stance. He is gonna be a defensive player of the year in this league. Uh, have you had a chance to watch Memphis at all? And if so, in particular, what do you think about Jaron Jackson? A little bit. I would. Uh, I would actually like to to uh, add that we should from now on be calling Jaron Jackson, Ju- calling him Jaron Jackson Jr., who Sirit was smart enough to pick up in fantasy. Who's <laughs> really helping me out now? <laughs> there you go. Especially the last few games. But no, you're right. He. I mean, I think. I think we kind of. We kind of saw this coming a little bit. I mean, he just. The way that he can just he can just hop out of the gym, you know, and he's kind of got like that second step too. So it's just it's just a matter, I think, of 
him kind of learning the intricacies of how to play defense, but like he just, he has, he has, I know this sounds like such a cliche, but he's really one of those guys that like, I really think that just has like an instinct for the ball, especially when he's down low. Like he can kind of just, he can kind of time out his blocks really, really well. And, uh, you know, there are times when that's definitely going to get him burnt, but he's just so athletic. He's so smart. And, uh, you know, hopefully, learn a little bit more about positioning from Gasol for however long that Gasol is around for. But yeah, right now it just, it kind of, it kind of looks like, you know, Memphis got their guy. I think he, they got the guy that they were at best imagining that they would get. And he's kind of stepping out a little bit to the three point line too. And, you know, if that gets going, you kind of like this, this, this guy is the embodiment of what you want a modern big man to look like in this league. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's already averaging one, uh, a little over one steal and one and a half blocks a game in limited minutes, which is actually pretty huge. It means like he's kind of learning his feel. And, you know, after spending a couple of years trying to get away from the grit and grind uh, Grizzlies, it feels like they're back. They're currently sixth in defensive rating. And, uh, you know, they held the Nuggets to 87 points last night, which is just kind of crazy because, you know, the Nuggets have one of the best offenses in the league. Uh, Coach, Memphis is outperforming uh, their roster right now. Uh, eventually, I, I believe that the schedule will catch up with them. Uh, Marcus Gasol and Mike Conley, I mean, these are guys that they're, they're still very good. I mean, uh, both guys who have kind of taken a step back, whether due to injury or age or both. Um, it feels like if you're, if you're kind of on the cusp or, of competing, that these are guys that teams should be going after, even though they, I mean, they've got big contracts. Don't get me wrong. I understand that, that the, the financial part of it may preclude some teams from wanting to make that sort of commitment, but I have to think that there, there are going to be teams making calls about these guys. So yeah, let's go backwards and get into that conversation. Uh, Jackson is a, a really special talent and that team's drafted poorly for a long time. Uh, they did not draft poorly with this kid. He is, um, it's it's a it's a silly comparison, I guess, because he's on Memphis and Zebo was on Memphis. But you know, I'm old enough to have appreciated Zebo and as a McDonald's All American and as at Michigan State. In fact, he beat my my Gator team in the national championship as a sixth man when he played with Mateen Cleaves uh, and Mo Pete. Uh, but Zebo is one of the most talented feel bucket getters I've ever seen in you know basically forty some odd years of watching basketball. Um, Zach Randolph just had his unbelievable knack, which is you kind of reference that Dave to, to JJ, uh, just of knowing where to be on the court. He plays within himself and yet he, and he, by the way, Zebo, you guys picture Zebo for Memphis, but when he was at Michigan state, he was a tall skinny guy with that's great right. hands and great feel and never in a rush. And that's how Jaron Jackson plays. He's just his pace. Like, I don't know how athletic he is. He had a couple of tip dunks against Denver last night. I watched the game. But I don't, I don't think he's a world-class athlete. Maybe, maybe he is, but I've not seen that. What I have seen is he plays like an old man in a, in a relatively young man's body and that he just knows where to go, when to cut, when to go to the rim, when to turn left, when to turn right. He's ambidextrous. Unlike Zebo, he can shoot the three. Uh, what he does defensively, as you're referencing. So, so now let's get to the question of Gasol and Connolly. So what does Memphis do? They, they beat Utah on the road without Donovan Mitchell. They beat a hot Denver team last night. Chandler Parsons is done. Uh, uh, people, you know, anyone that follows Chandler has to know, like, like you saw, I guess, uh, um, who just got, who just got a, um, uh, uh, Teletovich, uh, Teletovich, uh, Teletovich. Yeah. The injury, the injury yeah. exception is what the, the bucks are going for. Yeah. Milwaukee. Right. So they got, they got cap relief. Well, when is that going to happen with Chandler Parsons? Like he, he played a couple games. People, we're calling him white lightning and all of that, but that guy can't play. He's done. Yeah. So, I mean, he keeps trying to play. That's the, but, that's but he the can't. Issue. like, he just, he can't go more than a game or two. And then he's out three weeks. He's going to, like, I don't know when he's going to retire, but he's going to, he's going to retire before he plays five games. He, he can't, he can't play anymore. And so, uh, so now the question with Memphis is, are you a, are you a buyer? Because you know what? They're, they're back to playing great defense. Jackson is going to get much better. Uh, uh, they have a, the Garrett Temple's okay. Uh, Omer Caspi was playing amazing for them, but he, he got banged up in the Utah game. I think ultimately he becomes a starter. Kyle Anderson is not the answer for them. Uh, Jermichael Green got hurt 
And yet here they are still, they've, they've had a couple of, you know, signature wins and the Phoenix loss on the road last week was a devastating loss because you just can't lose that game if you're trying to make the playoffs. And so, yeah, do you start looking at, okay, we got absolutely a cornerstone guy without question in, in Jaron Jackson. Do we move those guys uh, for, for players who are going to help us lose and have money to bring guys in? Or do they think, Maybe maybe we can make some kind of deal. Maybe maybe Chandler does. Uh, or in either way, he's not going to play. Do we go find someone and and get us in a top five? Because Marcus Saul is playing good, and he's a big reason why they're such a good defensive team. And uh, maybe we can upgrade at the two or three with Jackson playing the four or five. It becomes an interesting thing for Memphis, and that's the value. Honestly, it's the value when you when you hit a home run with the draft, whatever position it is. Because they've got a huge asset. Of course, they're not going to trade him. Do you move guys value around the league and stockpile some assets to uh, 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 let him play with, or do you think screw it? Let's you know, those guys have some time left on their deals. Let's let's see what we can do, and maybe and maybe steal a playoff round or two, uh, and become a, a, a place where we might be get another free agent because they want to play with one of the best young centers in the game. That that becomes an intriguing place to be. I think I think a side effect of teams like the Lakers and the Rockets and, uh, and new Orleans sort of scuffling here at the early goings is that you are going to have teams like Memphis who I I saw them as a bubble team coming in and they looked horrific in the first couple games. Uh, but I just thought with, if Conley and Gasol can be healthy and I knew Jaron Jackson would be able to contribute right away. He's just that kind of player, at least defensively, I knew he was going to contribute. Um, I thought they were a bubble team. I thought they could compete for the six, seven or eight seed if everything broke right. Well, you know, if the playoffs started today and I know it's so early, uh, we're only 12% of the way through the season, you know, they're the seven seed. And so you could see a scenario where this, this team, especially in a market like Memphis, where it's important for them to make the playoffs. Like, I mean, I don't know if that can be stated enough that, they, you know, it's a good basketball town, but it's, it's not a big market. They need to do well to keep eyeballs on them. I could see a scenario where they go out and they're trying to be a buyer if they can hang in there. Um, the, the issue is, can they make it the next, you know, six weeks until December 15th when some of these guys they may be interested in become available, you know, trades aren't really going to start heating up until around that time. You know, Jimmy Butler, I mean, Jimmy Butler's a guy who could be really interesting for Memphis if they were willing to take a rental and just see what happens. Uh, I think he would kind of fit in there quite a no bit and, and give them a real chance to, to actually make a, make a difference in the playoffs, not just go and, and lose in the first round. I mean, Jimmy Butler is the type of player that, that affects the, the game when he's in there. And, you know, it's not just uh, going out and getting like a decent two guard. I mean, that's a, that's a real star player. So yeah, I'm with you. I, I hope that they do because I, I mean, I just love to watch Mike Conley. Like he's, his ability to use either hand with the floater, and I, this is like super like uh, micro stuff, but I, I just I nerd out about that. I mean, I've never seen a guy who had an offhand floater that's as nice as his is. I mean, that's like oh, it's the best in the league. It's insane. It, it, it's that's one of those things, kind of like uh, like Noah Vonleh is really great at a fake uh, dribble handoff. And this is just the stuff that I pay yeah. attention to. Um, but uh, another guy who could potentially be on the move, and I don't think it's going to happen this year, but probably next summer. Uh, and I, I mentioned they were scuffling a little bit. The, the Pelicans started out, I mean, they were gangbusters. And things have sort of fallen apart as Anthony Davis, you know, is struggling through his first injury of the year, likely to, you know, be many if we're looking at his track record. Um, he did have a nice game last night, starting to look a little bit more like himself. Uh, Sirit, do you think the Pelicans are, are going to be able to write the ship? I mean, are they going to just say, you know what? We probably could get more value if we went ahead and traded him now. I mean, he's got a, he, he's not a free agent until after next season. Um, but pre-agency is now a thing. You know, do you see any scenario where, where the, the Pelicans can a make the Anthony Davis thing work where he doesn't feel like, and to quote him, he has to play perfectly in order for them to win. So do they go out and acquire someone who's not Wesley Johnson or do they just go ahead and, and start thinking about the future and move them and try to get more assets? Well, I actually wanted to go back to, to okay. the soul thing for, yeah, that's for a fine. moment because uh, the, the Lakers are obviously the, the team that you hear about the most just because, you know, they, I don't know how long that you can keep trotting out uh, 
JaVale and Tyson Chandler as your, as your guys. But I think they probably want to be a little bit more patient waiting for a guy like Davis. The team I've been thinking about as a trade target for, for Gasol are the Spurs, who actually acquired a draft pick from Toronto that's kind of right around the range of, I think, what Gasol would, would command at this point. And I think he would, I think he'd be a pretty perfect fit there for a team that is, you know, just essentially just trying to compete at this point, not really aspiring to do anything more than that. I think that's kind of a good low pressure sort of setting for him. Uh, I don't know how much his brother is going to continue holding up at center. And maybe he could be part of a package just to, you know, I guess bring things completely full circle as far as, uh, as far as the Gasol brothers in Memphis go as well. And it just seems like, uh, it seems like one of those natural fits. Yeah. And I just also would love to see Gasol operate with, uh, like just to see what pop would do with them. And I mean, he would provide some, some much needed spacing for them. I mean, sort of how, mm-hmm. what Powell's doing now, but with much better defense. Um, yeah, that's, I, I like it. I like that move. Uh, so, all right, back to Anthony Davis. Um, that, that, situation just feels like it's coming to a head at some point. And I, I feel like it's sooner rather than later. I mean, he switched agencies going, going to clutch. Um, I guess I'll get, give coach the first crack at it. Uh, what's, what, what's going to happen? I mean, uh, not that we're trying to predict the future, but it just feels like something has to happen. So here's, here's my, my, my simple soliloquy on Davis. Although I'll start with a question. What does he have left on his deal? Is it two years after this or three? He has a, yeah. So he has an option. This year, next year, and then an option. Yeah. That's so he's only got okay. one year left. Right. That's what I thought. So if you're that franchise, you sit down with him and you you ask him, you know, what when what is it and when can we get a commitment that no matter what you're coming back? Uh, and what are the parameters that would what are the conditions that need to be met for us to get that for you? And you get an answer because my attitude is. His, his value is never going to be higher than it is right now. And what you can't have happen is have him walk, right? You cannot right. have that if you're New Orleans and lose arguably the top, a top three, four player in the world entering his prime and get nothing back for it. Uh, the, the Celtics have a boatload of assets. Uh, the Sixers have a boatload of assets. There, there are others that have uh, uh, really good young players, draft picks uh, that can keep New Orleans interesting. I mean, basically, if, 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 you were, if you were a fan base, if you were the New Orleans fan base, and someone said to you, uh, we're going to be in the mix for a, a top six playoff seeding every year because of all of our talent, is that good enough for you as a season ticket holder? I think most women would say yes, not all of them. But you, you, the alternative is, that guy walks away with nothing, and we're Cleveland, where Cleveland is right now. And so to me, you, you can't just wait last minute and hope you keep them when you're a franchise like that. It's just never going to get free agents uh, to recover from. Uh, you're going you're gonna to be doomed for five to seven years. So unless they make uh, some decisions, and, and um, I can't say too much. I'm, I'm friendly with the, with the people behind the scenes there, and I mean, they're looking at some things, but there's not a lot to do. They're not getting much wing help. And clearly, they could do some things there. Uh, but my big thing is you just can't – you cannot be a franchise anymore. And I go back a long way with this. When Masai was, was running the Nuggets, and he and I were talking a lot about, about Carmelo, you, you know, when his value was pretty good still, you can't be the guy that, that you just were in Toronto with Chris Bosh because Masai was an assistant GM with Toronto when Bosh just left for nothing – you can't do that. And New Orleans is in a much worse situation. You're, so, man, I'm, I'm not trying to trade him. I'm just open and I'm talking to people and I'm talking to his people. What are the chances? Uh, maybe, I mean, the Lakers, by the way, are loaded with young talent too. Loaded. So if you packaged him in a deal and got Kuzma and Ball and whoever, um, you're going to have to take some other players back, of course. Uh that's something I have to consider doing as opposed to struggling to be a playoff contender anyway, and then lose them when you lose them. I, I just, they got to be thinking about that. Well, I, I sort of talked about this uh, a little bit uh, yesterday with some people, uh, you know, I think when you've got an opportunity to get a guy like Anthony Davis, or, you know, you look at Toronto with Kawhi Leonard, you put every chip on the table. 
There's nothing that is off. The only guy the Lakers shouldn't be trying to trade for Anthony Davis is LeBron James. That is it. That's the only guy. So if, if Dell Demps calls him up and says, I mean, Hey, that. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Really? Well, I that's agree. true. Yeah, right. I, I agree. <laughs> You're right. But, but if Dell Demps calls him up and says, Hey, uh, how about Ingram, Kuzma, Hart, Lonzo, uh, the keys to the Bentley and the stable right. center, you make the trade. I mean, it, it just, it, you know, I think the Lakers, it, there's this thing where, they they overvalued their own talent last last summer and they missed out on Kawhi Leonard. And I think Kawhi Leonard might wind up staying in Toronto. Um, I have no inside source on that, but I just think that's such a great situation. And Toronto is such a great city. And, you know, there's all these reasons. Um, also, being in the East, you know, it, it's a little less competitive. Let's be honest. Um, Sirit, I, I like what what sort of deal do you see out there? I mean, knowing Boston can't can't make the trade because of the Rose rule. So they couldn't do it until the summer. Do you feel like anyone that I'm not thinking of, you know, really I'm only thinking of the Lakers could swoop in there and, and maybe snag Anthony Davis. It's going to really be between Philly and the Lakers, at least, uh, at least right now. And I think that I, I think that I couldn't agree with you guys more in terms of Davis's value, especially after, you know, the Lakers do have to be a little bit nervous They missed out on George and, you know, Kawhi is, I mean, the Raptors are playing really, really well right now. Kawhi seems happy. They seem to be giving him what, the, what, what he wants. He, when he plays, he's heavily featured in the offense. They rest him as, you know, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't know anything for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and assume that, uh, that Kawhi's level of play right now and just, uh, just the games that he's sitting out, like it, his camp has got to be happy with how careful they're being with him. Like they're kind of just essentially catering to, to what he wants. And the team's been really successful. He has a good relationship with Nick nurse. They're really featuring him. Like pretty much like he's never been featured before. And just like the role that he has on offense right now, it's just something that, you know, if you can be the best player on the team, and the team is as good as the Raptors are playing right now. It's just really, really hard to to give something like that up if that continues. So, the Lake, if you're the Lakers, you got to be nervous about hey, this whole idea that we can kind of attract any superstar that we want. You know, that's that's got to be something that they got to go back on a little bit. And at the same time, like through the Pelicans, you got to be looking at some of these packages for Jimmy Butler and saying what? Like this is Jimmy Butler. I mean, obviously a great player, a top 10, 15 player in the league, but he isn't Anthony Davis. And, you know, when you see Houston coming in and saying, you know, we'll give you four first round draft picks, the Pelicans got to be thinking, listen, I mean, four first round draft picks and we're talking to you guys too. So, you know, I think, I think it's just a perfect time for, for them to strike. And I actually, I think they should do it now before Butler is traded just because that takes, that probably takes one team off the table and, uh, you know, like, and, uh, you know, to, to your point of whether it could be a different team, like, I do think, I do think Houston could be one of those teams definitely gives them a lot more, uh, a lot more balance than trading for, for Butler would. And I think that would just, you know, catapult them in a way that Butler wouldn't and also just be, you know, a complete cornerstone and just, I guess, elongate their ceiling. Whereas I think with Butler, you kind of have to worry about whether this is, this is right now. And you also have to worry about, do I want to pay this guy what he thinks he, what he thinks he deserves? Whereas Davis, like you kind of know that that's just an absolute no brainer. So, you know, I think, uh, I don't know if, uh, I don't, I don't know if they'll be able to quite build a leverage that, that Minnesota has with a complete refusal to, to trade him. But at the same time, you also got to look at it from the Pelicans' perspective of like, yeah, you can't afford to let him walk away for nothing. But at the same time, for the Pelicans, how much do you feel like you can really afford to to let him walk away unless you really, really feel like you have a strong shot at at getting another guy that you know could be somebody like him, whether that's in draft picks or or young guys. So you know, it does it does really have to be the kitchen sink? Yeah, I, I just think you know those sorts of players that can individually change a franchise are rare. And, and yeah. you know, Jimmy Butler is not, I mean, he did it in Minnesota, but I don't like, there's a, there's a ceiling there with, with Jimmy Butler. 
But the Steph Curry's, the KD's, the Kawhi Leonard's, the Anthony Davis, the Giannis, like there's just not many of those guys. And I mean, just the idea that anything would be off the table in those negotiations is insane, especially he's in his peak. I mean, like, it's not like he's 29, 30 years old. I mean, he's 25 or 26. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I I just, I don't know. It's, it's a crazy conversation and, 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 you know, it might even be a little early. Like I, I was really high on new Orleans coming in. Maybe they'll figure it out and say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to run with it. I mean, teams, they like to win games because the people that work there want to keep their jobs. Uh, I get it. And, and trading away a superstar, it's a tough move. It it never is going to go over well with the fans. You know, few and far between are are the 76ers fans where you can sell them on being bad for a couple of years with the hope of being good. There's not a lot of markets that can sustain that new Orleans are already a small market. So go ahead, get out ahead of the backlash that this podcast is going to get <laughs> where we're talking about <laughs> trading Anthony Davis. Um, but the other, uh, the other thing though, with the Pelicans, like about whether they might may or may not be able to, to win some games here is like last year, they were one of the streakiest teams in the league as far as going on a win streak, going on a losing streak. And it wasn't like, they weren't really a team that like, if you go down their game log from last year, there's just like a whole bunch of green, a whole bunch of red, a whole bunch of green, a whole bunch of red. Like it wasn't like there was a lot of balance there for them. Right. Like they, would, they were always just streaking in one direction or the other. Obviously they had that huge streak in, in February when, uh, when the markets went down, but that's kind of just been the way that things have shook out for them. So I'm not necessarily too down on them just because they're like, they got to win, but against Chicago, it's just, you know, of course, but you know, they are, they are a team that is kind of prone to, to go on runs like these from time to time. Yeah. I mean, again, they, they rely so much on Anthony Davis and, and, you know, when he gets dinged up, it's just, it's just difficult. Uh, I think that's probably a good spot to wrap, uh, coach. I'll, I'll give you the first crack at, uh, final thoughts. Yeah. So we were texting last night about, uh, one of the, one of the things I think is really happening that are causing a lot of problems for defense is refs are just allowing illegal screens, uh, like it's Europe in Europe. It's almost like football. There are people are clipping everybody. And uh, that wasn't the case in the NBA for a long time. KG got away with a lot, but most of the players didn't. And now we're we're seeing illegal screens like never before. And it's it, with players moving, the ball moving, and illegal screens being set, it puts the defense at such a disadvantage. So that's something that we all can watch out for. If they start nipping that in the bud, watch watch numbers plummet offensively even further. Yeah, Tyson Chandler had a great illegal screen at the end of the game last night. I, I, I was like, see, that's why they brought him in. You know, you need the the savvy veteran to uh, set illegal screens and shove guys out of bounds on the glass. Uh, Sirat, uh, do you have any final thoughts? Anything you're going to be paying attention to the next week? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I'll I guess I'll I'll get I'll use this opportunity to to plug oh, for okay. an article that I'll be writing tomorrow. There you go. Uh, Good. Perfect. Just. Oh, we're doing something on Demar and and Blake Griffin and just how they're doing on uh, on their new on their new team. I think it's a good reset of expectations for them, and I also think it'll be really interesting to watch maybe a reversal happen with their value as teams continue to uh, to to keep switching. I know I know Coach uh, thinks that this is gonna this is gonna start going down a little bit, which I, I do agree with, but. You know, it's never been it's never been better to have switchbusters. So all these guys who are kind of like mid range isolation players, where you didn't really know what to do with them, they're kind of finding new life in uh, in the NBA this year just by being able to to beat up on on small guys and uh, and be able to get past past big guys. I think Blake is a pretty good example of that this year. There's just yeah. really there's really no matchup that he hasn't been able to crush. To be honest, like against teams that have multiple versatile defenders. He's just been, uh, he's just been killing pretty much, pretty much everybody. And I think, I think DeMar, the way that he's utilized in, in San Antonio, a little bit of the step back to DeMar that we saw prior to last year when he started to get away from the isolation game, but he's a little bit more refined now. And, uh, I think the league is more inviting of it too. So that's going to be kind of interesting to watch throughout the league. Yeah. And DeMar has been fantastic. It's funny what happens when, when a guy is put into a position, position to succeed and play to his strengths. And the, the Spurs are so great at doing that. Um, for me, it's going to be, uh, watching the Brooklyn nets as much as possible. Karis Levert is one of my, one of my favorite players to watch so far this season. I mean, he's really broken out. 
I've always loved Jared Allen. I was really high on him coming in. Uh, I want to see if they can get some more production out of D'Angelo Russell. Uh, I think the Spencer Dinwiddie, Karis LeVert uh, kind of backcourt is is where they ought to lean. But you know, when you've got a guy like D'Lo who's so intriguing because of the physical gifts and his feel of the game, I mean, you're you're going to see him get every chance he can to succeed. And they've got the Nuggets and the Warriors next, and so I want to see if that that victory over the Sixers was just a fluke, or if this is a team that's kind of on the cusp and, and might be a piece or two away from actually being a competitor in the East. I mean, the East has gotten a lot more fun anyway, but man, I'm loving the Nets right now. Um, Sirit, thank you very much for joining us this week. Everyone, follow her on Twitter at Sirit Sohi and uh, Coach. As always, a pleasure for uh, Jade Hoy and the rest of the Count of Dings crew. I am Dave DeFore. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.